welcome to Blood, Bodies, and Bones, a podcast about true crimes, murder mysteries, hauntings, urban legends, and more. I'm your host, Jay. On today's episode, I'm going to share with you the story of eight gruesome murders that would not only lead police in multiple directions with many possible suspects, but would shock and divide the residents of a small community and would still be debated and talked about 110 years later. This is the Velasca Axe Murders. When you think of a small town, safety, trust, and kindness are probably some of the first thoughts that come to your mind. You know the family who lives four houses down from you. Your children may even attend the same school or go to each other's birthday parties or school events. Neighbors check in on each other in a small town. You feel safe and secure about leaving your door unlocked because you trust your neighbors and know that they'll keep an eye out for you. Villisca, Iowa was one such community. In 1912, this Midwest town was bustling and thriving, with approximately 30 trains that would pass through the town each day. New businesses were developing, and individuals wanted to profit off of the ever-growing area. A close-knit community with approximately 2,000 residents, Villisca was a town where you could leave your doors unlocked, and neighbors did check in on each other. One family that was known for their kindness and generosity in the community was Josiah and Sarah Moore. Josiah was a 43-year-old successful businessman and had amassed a reasonable wealth in his 30s. 39-year-old Sarah was a wife and mother who took care of their four children, Henry, who was 11, Mary, 10, Arthur, 7, and Paul, who was just 5. The Moores and their four children had strong ties and good relationships with many people in the town. The young family of six also attended and actively participated in their local Presbyterian church. On June 9th, the Moore family were preparing to attend a local Children's Day service hosted by their church, which Sarah helped to organize. Around 9.30 that evening, the event ended with performances by the children. Tired from the day's activities, the Moore family and two of the children's friends, Lena and Inna Stillinger, left church that evening and traveled back to their two-story timber-style home. The Moore children went to bed in a room just down the hall from their parents on the second floor while the Stillinger sisters slept in a guest room on the main floor. Shortly after midnight on June 10th, while sleeping peacefully in their beds, a stranger proceeded to enter the Moore residence, lifting a latch on the unlocked back door. Given how close the residents of Villisca were, it wasn't uncommon to leave the door to your home unlocked. After all, you could trust your neighbors in this town. The stranger was able to silently slip inside. According to a reconstruction of events by the town coroner, he took an oil lamp, removed its chimney, and bent the wick to dim the lamp, creating a flame just visible enough to light his path as he slowly and carefully crept through the home. With an axe in one hand, taken from the shed on the Moore property, the man walked past the first floor room where Lena and Inna were sleeping, and quietly started up the staircase to the second floor. Cautiously walking past the children's room, he proceeded to enter Josiah and Sarah's bedroom. Standing over their sleeping bodies, he raised the axe above his head and swiftly brought it down on Josiah, crushing the patriarch's skull with the flat end of the blade. Then, without hesitation, he turned his attention to Sarah, quickly striking a blow to her head as well. After bludgeoning both Josiah and Sarah, he walked back down the hall to where the children were sleeping. One by one, he proceeded to kill each of the four more children. There was no evidence to suggest that the children woke before they were killed, or that there was a noise loud enough to wake the Stillinger sisters downstairs. Slowly and quietly, the killer made his way back down the staircase to the first floor. 
Lena and Inna were his next victims. Clearly not content with killing everyone in the household, the killer then returned to each of the bedrooms and proceeded to savagely bludgeon the heads of his victims to nothing more than pulp and blood, rendering them unrecognizable. It was estimated that the killer struck each individual anywhere from about 20 to 30 times. He proceeded to then cover both Josiah and Sarah's mangled heads with bedclothes. He placed a gauze undershirt over Herman's face, a dress over Mary's, and he also covered Boyd, Paul, Lena, and Inna. The killer then went into each room and hung cloths over every mirror and piece of glass. He then proceeded to the kitchen and took two pounds of uncooked bacon from the icebox, leaving it on the floor by the downstairs guest room, next to a keychain that reportedly did not belong to the Moors. When I read this, the first and obvious thought was that he sexually assaulted one or both of the Stillinger sisters. Or perhaps this was something more symbolic for the killer, referring to his victims as animals slaughtered. After committing the murders, the killer cleaned his bloody hands in a bowl of water. Before sunrise, the killer, leaving the lamp at the top of the stairs, left the Moore residence just as quietly as he arrived, even locking the door behind him and taking the keys. Later on the morning of June 10th, a neighbor noticed that the usually active Moore home was oddly quiet. Their curtains were still shut, and none of the members of the Moore family had started with their morning routines. Out of concern, Josiah's brother Ross was contacted about the unusually quiet home. At around 8 a.m. that morning, Ross had entered the home with a key he had and discovered the horrific nightmare that was waiting for its first visitor. Velisca's marshal, Hank Horton, was immediately contacted, and by the time that he, a doctor, a coroner, and the Moore's priest arrived at the Moore residence and examined the brutal crime scene, Word of the gruesome multiple murders had spread like wildfire in the small town. A crowd had now gathered outside of the home. Upon leaving the scene, the ever-growing crowd was cautioned not to enter the Moore residence. However, many did ignore this warning. Approximately 100 curious neighbors and townsfolk wandered through this house of horror, disturbing blood spatters, fingerprints, and even taking a piece of Josiah's skull as a keepsake. Even though this was a small community in 1912, why wouldn't you have someone stationed outside the crime scene to ensure that no one enters the home, especially after knowing the amount of individuals that were already starting to gather outside their Moore residence? I think that this goes to speak as to just how trusting and comfortable everyone was with each other in the community. Authorities discovered several depressions in some of the bales of hay stored in the family barn on the Moore property. There was also a knothole in the barn through which the murderer could have spied on the household while he was relaxing comfortably on one of those bales of hay. As I mentioned earlier, authorities did have reason to believe that there was sexual assault involved with one or both of the Stillinger sisters. Lena Stillinger was found with her nightgown drawn up past her waist. However, when her body was examined by doctors for signs of sexual assault, no evidence was found. After bringing in bloodhounds and several attempts to search the surrounding area for the killer, combined with the tainted crime scene and the fact that approximately 30 trains stopped in Villisca every day, officials didn't have very much to go on and started to believe that the killer was long gone. So who committed these horrendous and brutal murders? Was this an attack by someone who was out for revenge or the work of a serial killer who satisfied their needs for now? It's at this point in the story where the case starts to take many twists and turns, 
and becomes as dramatic as a daytime soap opera. With little to no leads or evidence to go on, police started to focus their attention on a few different suspects over the next several years. The first individual was Frank Jones. In addition to being a member of Villisca's Methodist Church, Frank was also a state senator and a local businessman in the community. He was an obvious suspect for a few different reasons. Even though no formal charges were laid, Frank became the focus of a grand jury investigation that destroyed his political career. According to Edgar Epperly, a leading authority on the Villisca Axe murders, the town was split along religious lines, with members of the Presbyterian Church where the Moors attended adamant of Frank's guilt, while the members of the Methodist Church were certain of his innocence. It was believed that Frank had a hatred of Josiah based on two reasons. Josiah, who had worked at Frank's farm equipment business, left in 1907 to set up his own rival business. Upon his departure, Josiah took a very important account with him, John Deere. Worse than stealing that important account, it was rumored that Frank's daughter-in-law, Donna Jones, was having an affair with Josiah. Donna, who was a town beauty, had a reputation for setting up numerous trysts over the telephone. Calls at that time in the town of Aliska were placed through an operator. Tensions were at an all-time high between the two rivals by 1912, so much so that the two gentlemen would not even walk on the same side of the street, which, in a small town where everyone was friendly with each other, would have been very noticeable. In 1912, Frank was 57 years old, and due to his age and social standing in the community, there were few people that believed Jones would have committed the murders. However, some did believe that he would have been capable of paying someone to murder Josiah and his family. In 1916, James Wilkerson, an agent of the Burns Detective Agency, stated that he believed that Frank hired William Mansfield to wipe out the man who humiliated him. Williamson, who had already been a thorn in Frank's attempt to get re-elected and was able to have a grand jury convened to review evidence against Frank, showed that Mansfield was very much the correct fit for such a job having already been a main suspect in the 1914 axe murder of his wife, her parents, and his own child in Blue Island, Illinois. However, Mansfield was released due to lack of evidence. His alibi was solid, as payroll records showed that he was working several hundred miles away at the time of the murders. One stronger and far stranger possible suspect was Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. An English immigrant and preacher, Kelly was known as a sexual deviant with well-recorded mental issues, and he was in Villisca on the night of the murders. Although the Reverend only stood 5 foot 2 and weighed 119 pounds, making him an unlikely suspect, there were other factors that convinced authorities that Kelly may have been the murderer. One such factor was noted by L.A. Lindquist, the county coroner. Lindquist, who examined the blood spatter patterns in the Moore residence, deduced that the axe would have had to have been swung in such a way to suggest that the killer was left-handed, which the Reverend was. It was also noted that Kelly was caught peeping into the windows of homes in Villisca just a couple of days before the murders. As the investigation continued, it was soon clear that there were links between the Reverend and the Moore family. Kelly had attended the Children's Day service at Villisca's Presbyterian Church on the evening of the murders. Many in the small town believed that Kelly had spotted the family that evening and became obsessed with them, spying on the Moors as they went to bed. Lindquist's investigation also had evidence suggesting that the killer may have been on the Moor property, waiting for the household to fall asleep before his attack. In 1917, 
a grand jury would be assembled to hear evidence that linked Kelly with the murder of the Moors and the Stillinger sisters. Kelly left Villisca via train that morning around 5 a.m. However, an elderly couple recalled meeting him as he got off the train around 5.19 a.m. That couple stated that Kelly told them that gruesome murders had been committed in the town. How would Kelly have known about the murders three hours before the bodies were discovered? It was also uncovered that just a week later, Kelly returned to Villisca and pretended to be a Scotland Yard investigator, gaining access to the Moore residence. After being arrested in 1917, Kelly was repeatedly interrogated and confessed to the murders. In his confession, it was noted that he stated, I killed the children upstairs first, and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do so. Slay utterly came to my mind, and I picked up the axe, went into the house, and killed them. Kelly would later recant his confession, and the couple who claimed to have spoken to him changed their story. Without more to tie him to the murders, the jury was hung 11 to 1 in favor of not indicting him, and a second panel freed Kelly. Aside from the two suspects, there was also the McCleary theory to consider. Between 1911 and 1912, there were several axe murders in the Midwest, suggesting that there was a serial killer at large. Information from these crimes would place doubt in authorities' minds that Jones and Reverend Kelly were guilty of killing the Moors and their children's two friends. It was said that as many as ten other murders that occurred close to railway tracks might have been connected to the Villisca axe murders due to the striking similarities in several of the cases. Special Agent Matthew McClurry of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, who assisted with the Villisca murders, began noticing a pattern and connections between some of the other murders and the Villisca incident. This would be known as the McCleary Theory, which was comprised of several murders that began with six individuals being killed in September 1911 in Colorado Springs, Colorado, two more in October 1911 in Monmouth, Illinois, and Ellsworth, Kansas, another two incidents in June 1912 in Paola, Kansas, and Villisca, Iowa, and one incident in Columbia, Missouri in December 1912. In Colorado Springs, Colorado, on September 17, 1911, six individuals were murdered. Alice Burnham and her two children were killed by blows from an axe at some point the previous evening and were found in their locked home. The other three victims were Henry Wayne, his wife, and their baby daughter, all three of whom were found in their beds with their skulls crushed in. The Wayne residence was just adjacent to where the first three victims were discovered. In both homes, nothing was taken. The residents had been locked, with the blinds drawn. The victims had bedclothes draped over them. The killer had stopped to wash his hands, and the bloodstained axe was found at the scene of the crime. Also, both homes were within walking distance to the train. In Monmouth, Illinois, on September 30, 1911, three individuals were murdered. William Dawson, his wife, and teenage daughter. Their bodies were found in their beds, with their skulls crushed in by a heavy object. The house was unlocked, the blinds were drawn, and nothing was disturbed or missing from the home. Bloodhounds were brought in to the murder scene and found a pipe covered in blood. A flashlight was also found in the yard with the words, Colorado Springs, scratched on it. On October 15, 1911, five victims were found dead in Ellsworth, Kansas. William Showman, his wife Pauline, and their three children were found in two different beds. Similar to the Monmouth, Illinois murders, the house was unlocked. 
It was also noted that the door was left open. The murder weapon of choice, an axe that was taken from the neighbor's yard, was found inside the home, with the blood washed off by the killer. An article of clothing was placed over the telephone. It was later concluded that the killer did this to muffle the sound of the phone, should it ring, thereby averting neighbor suspicion to an unanswered ringing phone call in the middle of the night. A lamp without its chimney was also found at the foot of one of the beds. In this incident, bloodhounds were also brought in and managed to track the killer's scent to a nearby railroad track, just a short distance away from the Shulman residence. In Palola, Kansas, on June 5, 1912, two bodies were discovered, Roland and Anna Hudson. The victims were found in their bed under a comforter. It appeared that the attack happened while the bodies were covered. In this incident, no weapon was recovered. The killer had gained access into the home through a window by removing the screen, which was found against the outside of the home. All valuables were left in the home, and a coal lamp without its chimney was left beside the bed. The final crime in McClurry's theory was committed in Columbia, Missouri on December 17, 1912. Henry Lee Moore, no connection to the Moore family, arrived at his grandmother and mother's home on the morning of December 17, 1912. He had previously informed his mother that he would be returning home that day to pay some bills and arrange for things for the holiday. According to Henry, when he arrived at the home, the front door was unlocked and the curtains were drawn. Henry entered the home to find his mother face up on the kitchen floor. Her body was still in her bedclothes. Henry ran from the scene to alert the neighbors. His grandmother, Mary J. Wilson, was found in her bed. Her head was struck with one blow from an axe. The house had been ransacked and an axe was found in a ravine near the home. Police would later arrest Henry after they found out that he arrived in town the afternoon before December 17th and stayed at a local hotel under an assumed name. Henry attempted to justify this by saying that he did not want his family to know that he had arrived a day early and was not staying with them. He also explained that blood spots on his clothes were due to a nosebleed. In March 1913, during the trial for the murder of his mother and grandmother, Henry claimed that he had never been to jail before his arrest, a fact that was untrue and would later be refuted by the prosecutor. Moore also gave the name of an older man whom he thought killed his mother and grandmother. However, he failed to mention this to the authorities when he was in jail for the three months prior to his trial. In May 1913, McCleary theorized that Henry Lee Moore was responsible for all six incidents due to the similar circumstances of each and the statement that Moore made at his trial. McCleary pointed out that the crime started after Henry was released from the Kansas Reformatory in 1911 and stopped after his imprisonment in Missouri in 1912. Henry's arrest and the publication of the McCleary theory did not clear the other five incidents, four of which were never officially solved. The other possible suspect was William Mansfield. Although these murders occurred a couple of years after the Villisca incident, both murders were disturbingly all too similar. Mansfield had killed his wife, daughter, and parents-in-law, and used sheets to cover the windows to ensure no one could look in. It would come to light that Mansfield had been in Illinois around the time of the Villisca murders, with an individual coming forward and informing the authorities that he saw William board a train in Clarinda, Iowa, which is only 20 minutes away from Villisca. Police would later link Mansfield to other axe murders in Kansas and Colorado. Mansfield was even a suspect in the notorious Axeman of New Orleans case. So were the murders in Villisca an isolated incident? 
potentially one of violent rage and revenge, or were they the result of a serial killer roaming the U.S. via train on a killing spree? 110 years later, and the answer to who committed the gruesome and bloody killings of eight individuals in Villisca, Iowa, remains undiscovered. The Moore home would live on, never again being occupied and remaining frozen in time. Many decades later, while the neighborhood around it has changed, the original home is still standing. Steeped in legend and mystery, it is now known as the Villisca Axe Murder House and attracts individuals from all over. For a fee, you can tour the home where the murders occurred, and for those brave enough, you can even spend the night there. It has even been reported that the house is haunted, with the main level room where the Stillinger sisters stayed being the most active. Want to give your opinion as to who you think committed these murders? Was it a serial killer or someone just out for revenge? Head on over to our Instagram or Facebook page and tell us your thoughts about this episode. You can follow Blood Bodies and Bones on Instagram or Facebook at Blood Bodies and Bones Podcast or by clicking on one of the links in the episode description. If you like the very first episode of Blood Bodies and Bones, why not subscribe so you can be notified when the next episode releases? I just want to take a quick moment and thank all of the individuals who were supportive when I said that I was starting a podcast. And to you, my listener, thank you for letting me share the story with you, and I really hope you enjoyed it. I will be back on November 17th with a brand new episode for you. Until then, remember to keep your doors locked, your curtains closed, and maybe leave a light on when you go to sleep tonight.